Well, BCC, this morning we are going to be in the book of John in the New Testament. I want to give you a minute to turn to it. If you brought your Bible today and you are looking for the book of John, it's going to be somewhere in the back, probably two back third or back quarter of your Bible in the New Testament. If you look for it, maybe you have your phone today, but I'm going to give you a few extra minutes because we are going to walk through this scripture together, and I'd love for you to have access to it. So you can open up the Bible app. You can go to BibleGateway.com, which is my favorite online resource, but I'd love for you to turn to the ninth chapter of the book of John with me this morning. I'll meet you there in a moment, but first I want to ask you if you've ever had a moment when you're in the middle of a situation and you are so intent on what you're doing at that moment or your agenda at that moment that you totally miss what's going on around you. Have you ever been in that place? Um, I, it happened to me on a plane about a week ago. Um, I was totally absorbed in a movie, a, a great movie I was watching on my phone. And um, so, this is unlike me, but I was so absorbed that I didn't realize that the plane had begun its descent into our destination. And um, the plane hit the ground, and I jumped about 10 feet out of my seat. Thank goodness I had my seatbelt on because I scared everyone around me. I think they thought I had never flown before because I was so jolted by the impact of the plane touching the ground that I, anyway, made a fool of myself. Um, but I was completely unaware of what was going on around me because I was so focused on this movie, the situation in front of me. And I, I wondered if that's something that maybe I'm alone in. But <laughs> maybe it's something you've experienced too. Um, scientists have actually studied this phenomenon in our brains. So it tells me I'm not alone in this. But um, there was a landmark study done in the late 90s that focused on our attention in any given situation, our ability uh, to miss things. So I thought maybe we could participate in this study together this morning. All right, so I'm, we're going to bring up a video, and I want you to watch the video. The goal of you watching the video is I want you to count. There's some people passing a basketball, and I want you to count how many times people in white shirts pass the basketball in this video. All right, so I'm, I'm going to step to the side here, and um, Kelsey is helping me. Thank you, Kelsey, and we're going to show this video to you. This is a test of selective attention. Count how many times the players wearing white pass the basketball. How many passes did you count? All right, Kelsey, if you'll pause it there. All right, how many, how many passes did you count? 15, did I hear? 15, does that seem to be the consensus? Um, 15 is actually the correct number. I'd also like you to note that every pair of jeans in that video is now back in style um, <laughs> from 1999. But um, who saw the gorilla? Who did not see the gorilla? It's okay, safe place. So when scientists did this study, about 50% of people who watched that video the first time, and Kelsey, if you want to play it again, I'm just going to, just so you can, if you're like me, I need to know if I missed it. I need to know that it actually was there. You can just go ahead and play through right. it. Answer so about 50% 50 50 of the people who watched but this did video you see the gorilla? did not see the gorilla. 
But there he is. <laughs> He's gonna pause and give us his thrilling moment here. Yep. <laughs> Thank you, Kelsey. Um, so <laughs> this is very interesting because it's a it's a case study in how we can manipulate our own perception, how we can be what we see. What we think we see is not always the truth. And sometimes we get so intent on f and focused on one particular element of what's going on around us that we miss. I mean, who would say, hey, I, I miss, I'm so sorry, I miss the gorilla walking through the, the situation here, right? But this is something that is true about who we are. It's a limitation for us as human beings. And sometimes we miss the obvious because we're allowing our desires or our desired outcome of the situation to shape the way we see any given situation. It's a similar concept or a similar conundrum that we're going to see in the ninth chapter of John this morning. And we're going to see Jesus confronting this idea of warped vision through an encounter with a blind man. Now, this section of the fourth gospel is concerned with narrating the ministry of Jesus. And, and, and understanding the ministry of Jesus is important to us because if we desire to know who God is, knowing who Jesus is, is, is the best way to get there, all right? And in this section of John's gospel, alongside that exploration of the ministry of Jesus, we begin to see Jesus and the disciples facing opposition to their work. There's this group of people, they're called the Pharisees. They're a group of Jewish religious leaders who were self-named <laughs> experts in the law. These were people who spent their lives learning and becoming familiar with the law of Moses, God's law, and they were the people that everyone went to if they had a question about whether something was a sin or not, whether something um, fell within the list of rules, that, that, um, within the commandments. The Pharisees were the people that everyone would go to, to as their judge, if you will, for right and wrong. Um, the Pharisees begin to take issue with Jesus' claims that he is the Son of God. And they cannot, because they cannot fathom that Jesus is the Messiah, because he's not doing the things that he, they thought the Messiah should be doing. He didn't come in the way that the, they thought the Messiah would come. He, he's not fulfilling their expectations of what they thought the Messiah would be. Now, the chapters leading up to this one in John are a slow build of controversy arising from the Pharisees about Jesus' healing miracles and his interactions with others. So slowly, they're starting to take issue with what Jesus is doing. In chapter 8, the chapter leading into what we'll focus on today, Jesus speaks directly to the disciples and the Pharisees alike, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Pretty clear. <laughs> I feel like Jesus is being pretty clear here. Um, but the Pharisees continue to find reasons to refute Jesus' words. So it's amidst this conflict that we turn to chapter 9. Now, if you're, if you're with me, there's 41 verses in chapter 9. We're going to read them all. I know that's a lot. Um, but I think it's, it's worthwhile for the impact of the story for us today. So let's, we're going to pick up right here in John chapter 9, verse 1. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? 
Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, 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 he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes opened, they asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked. I don't know, he said. So we're going to pause here for a minute Because from the get-go, we've got several key things to note from this passage. First, Jesus is is addressing a commonly held belief at the time that there is a connection between sinful action and illness. It, It was very typical at this time to believe that if you were facing some kind of calamity or disability or illness, that it was due to something that you had done or someone in the generation before you had done and you were therefore paying for it. Clearly, this is problematic, theologically. Um, Not to mention, it brings in some really dangerous assumptions about who God is and how God works. I think maybe it's easy for us, a few thousand years later, to look back and say, oh, they just didn't know better. They just were so confused, they just didn't know better. But the seed of this concept, the seed of of this problematic theology still exists. Um, I I talk about N.T. Wright a lot when we get together, but I thought his his example, his uh, metaphor here was helpful. He says, we often still think of the world as a moral slot machine. That we approach the slot machine, we put in a good coin, we pull the lever and out comes a good circumstance. We approach the slot machine, we put in an evil deed, we pull the lever and out comes some kind of evil consequence. I hope this is not the way that our God works. I'm not suggesting, friends, that there's not a wise, righteous way of life. Nor am I suggesting that there are not going to be consequences to evil actions. But life simply doesn't work that simply. We all have heartbreaking examples of people who are good, wonderful people who have faced impossible circumstances in their lives. We all can think of an example of the the person who pursues evil, sadly, and yet seems to always have things come out their way. We experience brokenness, friends, because we live in a broken world. But the power of Christ and the example that we're going to see here in John 9 is that brokenness can be fertile ground for the redemption of Jesus. 
And that's what Jesus does for this blind man. He says, no one sinned to get you here. He says, I'm going to do something beautiful. And I'm paraphrasing here, but he says his exact words are, this happens so that the works of God might be displayed in him. So as, as we're thinking about Jesus taking this brokenness and using it for fertile ground for his redemption, we might consider that the chaos and the misery of the present world can be the raw material out of which a loving and wise and just God is making a new creation. This is the hope we have today, that when we face difficult circumstances, that we can recognize that God can use them to make something new and beautiful. He specializes in it. We may not always see justice the way we would want it this side of heaven, but we get to know as Christ followers that he is working it out. Jesus reiterates here that he is the light of the world and that he is here to do his father's business. This man who was likely ostracized by society because of his disability. He was likely forced to live outside of town. He was likely not allowed to worship. His family was likely not allowed to worship because of his disability. Becomes a part of a bigger redemption story. He is no longer an outsider. Jesus brings him and makes him a vital part of what he's doing during his time on earth. And so Jesus demonstrates here that healing is possible and that transformation is a part of his mission. He wants to transform, and we see it happen here to this man physically. Interestingly, and I want you to really pay attention to the blind man throughout our time together this morning, but interestingly, his friends and neighbors are somewhat incredulous. They're not even sure this is the same guy that they previously knew. They, they pepper him with questions. How did this happen? Who healed you? How did he do it? Where is he? Right? They, they, they are just can't compute. They seemingly can't compute what's happening here. And the blind man responds directly. It was the man they call Jesus. So let's pick back up with the story in verse 13. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was the Sabbath. Therefore the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. Then they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The, blind, the man replied, he's a prophet. They still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son, they asked. Is this the one you say was born blind? How, it is, that, how is it that now he can see? We know he is our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind. But how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He's of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders 
who had already decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So the Pharisees take center stage during the second movement of this chapter. The blind man is brought to them so that he might be able to bear witness to what has happened. But they are not content with his version of events. (laughs) They're not satisfied. So immediately they turn to the rules they have in place. You see, needing, according to the law, needing was considered work. And since Jesus had kneaded the dirt in the ground with water, they believed that he had sinned because he had broken the Sabbath by working. Now, if Jesus had it sinned according to their rules, then there was no possible way that could, he could be of God. What's happening here is that the Pharisees are afraid. They don't want anything upsetting the order of things that they have worked so long to establish. There are clear lines for the Pharisees about who's in and who's out, and what you should do and what you shouldn't do. And the idea that someone could claim to act in the name of the one true God and yet falls outside those lines is unfathomable to them. The Pharisees have erected a system that is based on fear. Because they're afraid. They're afraid of the unknown. And so they make rules that make other people afraid. Look no further than the blind man's parents to see this in action. His parents, who have likely already lived through what it looked like to be cast out from the community because of their son's disability, give us a clear case study. They deflect the Pharisees' questions. They say, we don't know he's of age. Go ask him. Why? Because as the scripture tells us, if they, had, if they had acknowledged Jesus as Messiah, the Pharisees had decided they were out. If someone acknowledged that Jesus was Messiah, the Pharisees says, the Pharisees told them, you have no part with us here. They were afraid. This section of the story highlights the negative impacts of being governed by fear. Not only has fear clouded the Pharisees' vision, but it has limited the blind man's parents' ability to participate in the kingdom of God. Note here, though, what did the blind man respond when the Pharisees asked him who Jesus is? Check out verse 17. What do you say about him? It was your eyes he opened, and he responds, he is a prophet. We'll pick back up again in verse 18. A second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. So the blind man replies, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I have told you already, and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Then they hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. 
The man answered, now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Now the finger pointing is my own, but that's the way my brain sees it. The Pharisees double down here. There's no way that this could be going down outside of the way they imagined it going down. They are absolutely sure that this Jesus guy and God cannot be in the same conversation. You're either a follower of Moses or you're a follower of Jesus. You cannot be both. They're caught up in their definition of sin, so caught up that they cajole the blind man into giving God glory for his healing, and they're tricking him there. They're saying, give God. God glory for your healing because you can't give Jesus the glory because he's not of God. So they say to him, give God the glory for healing. How does the blind man respond? All I know is what he's done for me. I was blind, now I see. It's that simple. The humility of the blind man is clear in in his response. Who, Who am I to say whether or not he is a sinner All I know is what he's done for me. John, the writer of this gospel, sticks to this claim of sin by the Pharisees maybe to highlight to us that Jesus' action in healing the man is the clearest indication that this viewpoint of the Sabbath, this creation of this work on the Sabbath in order to heal someone else, in order to transform a life, is wrong. Jesus is doing a new thing here. He's taking this idea that the Pharisees have that this work that benefited another person was sinful because it was on on the Sabbath and it was outside of their rules, turning it on its head and saying, hey, I'm here. I have a new idea for healing and hope and transformation for the world, and I'm going to show you through the life of this man who's been blind since birth. But the Pharisees are so limited by their own vision by their own interpretation of the world, that they've limited themselves right out of being a part of the new thing that God's doing. But the blind man who was accused from, of being a sinner from the beginning of this story is the one who begins to see exactly what God is up to. We see through his his line of questioning, and I love how we see his confidence build as he realizes that the Pharisees are getting caught in their own argument. I, I love his transformation here. We see this through this line of questioning that he sees a bigger picture, not just a particular list of rules and regulations or moral behaviors that are or aren't being followed, but a consideration of a person's willingness to be open to the revelation of God that is happening through Jesus Christ. The blind man invites us to consider, are we willing to be shocked by the power of Jesus at work? Are we willing to lay down the assumptions and categorizations and man-made rules for the sake of the new story Jesus is ushering in? 
the one that leads to true freedom away from evil and death? Or will we be content staying in the comfort of the own boundaries and boxes we've created that cause us to miss what God's doing? There's one final note in this story, picking up in verse 35. Jesus heard that the Pharisees had thrown him out, and when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking to you, with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Jesus said, For judgment I have come into the world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this, say this and asked, What, are we blind too? Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. So at the end of the chapter, we find our blind man once again tossed out of the community by the religious leaders. In many ways, we've reached a parallel to the beginning of the chapter as the blind man once again encounters Jesus. But this time, he does so with different vision. He does so with vision that's been altered not just physically, but spiritually. And Jesus asks him, do you believe in the Son of Man. That phrase, the term which in traditional Jewish, Jewish usage was used as a marker for the beginning of God's final judgment, is used exclusively as a messianic identifier in the New Testament. In the New Testament, it's exclusively used to point to the Messiah. And when used here by Jesus as a self-identifier, as he's saying, I am the Son of Man, suggests that this judgment that was prophesied in the Old Testament, is already here at work. I'm here. I'm the Son of Man. I'm at work. And the light that he just told the disciples about in chapter 8, the light had come into the world, the light that heals, the light that bursts with truth, with holiness, with righteousness, changing everything it touches, had come in Jesus. And the blind man, who at the beginning of the chapter simply referred to him as that man, Jesus, professes faith in the Messiah and has his life completely come into focus. The end of the story of the Pharisees, however, has a little bit of a different tone. Jesus exposes their flawed thinking and expresses that not only do they not see, but they likely never will. His response suggests that it's more than just their eyes that are closed. It's their hearts. They aren't making themselves available to the same healing light that they've seen lived out in the example of the blind man. And it's only their own blindness in the form of stubbornness that can explain their behavior. One commentator on the section suggests to those who remained open and recognized how sin had truly blinded them from knowing the truth, he gave 
Jesus gave spiritual understanding and insight. At the same time, Jesus rejects those who would become complacent, self-satisfied, and for their own comfort, blind. The Pharisees created their own darkness at the cost of living in the light of Christ. Jesus' presence, says N.T. Wright, divides the world into those who come to the light and allow it to change, heal, and direct them, and those who resist the light and choose to remain in darkness, even while, in some cases, declaring boldly that they are the ones who see things clearly. So why this story? Why this story as we are continuing to walk through this season of Lent as the people of God? I think as we allow Scripture to read us today, that we find that we are all certainly the blind man. We all have limited vision. And I also think that it's likely that we are all the Pharisee. That there are places that we are so convinced of how God is or isn't at work, of how what we're doing is or isn't sin, that we aren't willing for the light to come into our own dark places. And Lent asks us to be honest with ourselves. Lent asks us to invite the Holy Spirit to shine light in our dark places, to give us an eye exam, if you will, so that our vision, our physical vision, and our spiritual vision might be corrected by the light of Jesus. As I read through this passage this week, oh, the question that I heard over and over again was, Stephanie, are you more consumed with being right than you are with being light. And I had to bring to the Lord in confession that there are places that that is true. That it's more important that I feel like I'm right than it is for me to lay something at the feet of the cross and say, Lord, bring light to where I've hidden things. You see, when we turn to Jesus when we offer our dark places to him. He does something so much more beautiful with the things that cause us shame than we could have ever imagined. And I pray today that the, the grace of God would work in each of us in such a way that our perspectives of, of the kingdom, of what God is doing that our perspectives are broadened, that our vision sees so much further and wider than we could have imagined. Because just as Jesus is the light of the world, so we are called to be, just as Jesus is the light of the world, so we are called to be light in the world. We, we don't want to be known as the people of God who, as, as a bunch of people who just do a bunch of gatekeeping. We're called to be people who recognize that we don't become unclean by association with, with people that we've decided are out, but that we can create a better world when we draw close to those whom the world has decided are unworthy or unclean. And we want to be the people who witness to God's good news in those forgotten places 
The kingdom calls us to be motivated by love over law, just as Jesus demonstrates in his interaction with the blind man. We need the vision of Christ so that we don't miss the gorilla, right? So that we don't think that we are seeing, but we're really blind. So as we continue throughout the final weeks of this season of Lent, of this season of confession and repentance, let's stand with the man born blind. Let's stand in recognition that there are places that we don't have it all right, but that we know the one who does. We know the one who brings true light, good truth, and good news into the world. Would you pray with me? Well, God, we are grateful for your word. And Lord, how cool it is that we get to spend 20 minutes and have a story come alive because of how the Holy Spirit works. And Lord, my words are woefully inadequate, God. But Lord, what I know is that the Holy Spirit can do so much more in our hearts and our minds. And that's what we cry out for today, God, that, that you would remind us to be light, that you would remind us to seek love over law. God, and that you would remind us that there is a way of light and truth and righteousness and holiness that you are calling us all to be a part of because that is what the world needs. So God, we thank you for your grace to us, for your conviction to us, Lord, that in a season of repentance and confession allows us to turn away from the darkness and reposition our hearts to you. And Lord, we thank you that that is just the kind of God you are. In Jesus' name we pray.